0: Hello, and welcome to episode 56 of Whiskey Talk from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm your host, Man Schmoll. This month, we're celebrating Whiskey Women, and with it being our 40-year anniversary, we wanted to speak to some of the incredible women who have shaped the SMWS over the past four decades. And who better to interview them than the SMWS women of the present? Anne Dana, Anne Griffiths, and Annabelle Meikle have contributed much to the society we recognise today from our approach to maturing whisky and bringing events to a wider audience, through to the creation of our members rooms in London's Greville Street and Queen Street in Edinburgh. I was lucky enough to sit down with Anne Dana, the first Managing Director of the Society in January. Let's hear from her first. So Anne, how did you start working with what would come to be known as the Society? Well, I started
1: on um, the development of the vault and that was, I was taken on to oversee the work and to uh, liaise with all the different trades. And part of it, when I was working here, um, there was a lot of time that I was just waiting for estimates, etc., to come in. And so I said, because the directors always had the idea of the Whiskey Society, um, let me just check up on bottles and what we can do and the costs of things and I never imagined it becoming a job. I was just filling in the time. And in in
0: 1983 the Society had its first cask but membership and the members room as we know it today, that didn't really exist. How did that all come about?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nothing much existed because um, unfortunately the original company went bust and uh, we were hanging on here. And at one point, I mean, it really did look derelict. And I do remember, I was probably 84, 85, a member coming in and there was just shutters all across the window. I mean, they were shuttered up. And uh, they said to the then bookkeeper, why why have you got all the windows shuttered up? And she said, oh, Anne feels it keeps us
0: (laughs) working hard. (laughs) And you also you played a role. So you were brought on as interior designer initially. What did that look like in terms of your your vision for the members' room?
1: Um, well, nothing because I hadn't envisioned a members' room. <clears throat> it wasn't till later when we were doing that that you know and the, the room was there. It was J&G Thompson's main office space. So when I came to see the vaults originally with Pip Hills. That was Jane G. Thompson's office, and they ran it from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, a totally different world. They had a drinks trolley that went round twice a day, not coffee break. Uh. They had drinks break. Um, Anyway, they were they were leaving, and uh, so I had seen the room. And the room is just a great big large well-appointed room. I mean, I didn't have to do much except, you know, restore the fireplaces and pick a colour, etc.
0: You, you also played a key part in production and kind of looking at label design, sourcing bottles and materials, um, and then later on building relationships with distilleries themselves. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Um, well, I think Ben Tindall had quite a lot to do with the actual uh, label design, and that was done between the, the group. And I have to stress how good they were. I mean, they were a diverse group of people, the original uh, people involved, the directors, um, and they had different skills, different abilities. Gordon Smith was a writer um, and he also was a producer. He had worked with the BBC and he knew all about layout, so basically I can't take credit for that, but the bottle certainly, the research, the bottling plant, finding places to and and then the buying of the the casks. And I just got kind of sucked into it bit by bit by bit, keeping thinking, oh, I'll leave next year, you know.
0: And in terms of building relationships with distilleries themselves, how did that come about?
1: Well, as you know, the whiskey industry is so generous. The people are just absolutely wonderful, generally wonderful to work with. And um, I think because I was, I didn't kind of pretend that I knew more than I did or that I was versed in anything, they kind of took me under their wing and said, oh, well, let me, you know, and men are actually quite good at doing that. If you kind of say to them, oh, can you help me out with this? Mm -hmm. So um, they were terrific, absolutely terrific.
0: Because it was quite unusual at that time for a woman to be in that role, sorting casks.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that also played in my favour. And uh, there was one woman who, I think there was one woman running a distillery. And yeah, some women involved in the process, but very, very few. It was, yeah, uh, unusual.
0: And um, when you were with the Society, you made a big push for laying down casks to to kind of future-proof the business in a way, Um, were there plans in place then for buying new maker Younger Spirit and then following on from that, were there any plans for additional maturation or re-racking of that, of those casks? Well,
1: I started that because I thought that was a terrific idea. And also I thought it was giving something back to the whiskey industry. I mean, we couldn't go continually along picking out the best casks, which is what we did, and, and worked very hard at it, I mean, clambering over, you know, galleries and uh, I went to Isla and, you know, visited the distilleries and um, they, were, they were very good. And as soon as they, for some reason, uh, maybe because I'm a good cook, I could tell the differences in the taste. So I would reject some things and, and and ask for others. So I thought it was only fair to give back in some way. And as you know, it's not a huge amount of money to lay down casks. The fact is that they have to take 12, I would say 12 years anyway, um, 15 years to mature. And so it ties up a lot of money over a lot of time. So my idea was just to build on that, um, distillery by distillery. And also for the future, we would then have a supply of very good whiskies from good barrels, because I always stipulated, you know, that is crucial. The barrel is crucial, and um, yes, that's how we went. But uh, you know, when I when I left, I don't know what happened about that.
0: And in terms of, let's just rewind a section a second and go back to um, membership and how you grew membership initially, because obviously you had the first cask of. Um, you know, the 1.1, and that was split between friends. Uh, but after that, how did you.?
1: Well, we had forecasts to start. The The first list went out with forecasts, and we're pretty damn proud of that when you think now it seems ridiculous. But we had the original people that used to buy from Pip Hills when he bought a cask. So I then had contacted them and said, could each of them give me 10 names. Plus Sally Lamond was our fantastic secretary, front of house, did everything. And uh, her husband was in various businesses and he, he recruited members for us. And just bit by bit we had this membership and actually that was enough to deal with. And we were doing fine and we were going to build it slowly when Pip, um, I I don't know how he came in touch with Jancis Robinson, but she tasted the whiskey, and the thing exploded. And we couldn't keep up. We didn't have enough whiskey. We didn't, you know, it was just, so he had to kind of be quite apologetic to people and say, look here, yes, we'd love you to join, but can you hang back for a few months? But it was a good position to be in. I mean, a really fortunate position to be in. And uh, it just, as I say, grew like Topsy.
0: And in terms of um, of, of what the society was like in 1983, can you paint a picture for us?
1: Yes, uh, well, I don't know what it's like now, but it was really good fun I think because um, of the kind of people that were involved. An awful lot of people involved in the arts, and it was a real diverse group of people. Russell Hunter was one of our um, shareholders, and an actor, and actually my neighbour, because we both bought a property together. And he had really, really you know, great ideas. Gordon Smith could write terrific things. I mean, our burn suppers were a legion. Um, just great and great From uh, There was uh, David Dyke's taught English at the university. I mean, a lot of these people are dead now and I'll never forget his um, toast at the Burns supper. I mean, just straight off the cuff, but you know, literate, intelligent, clever people. It, it, was, it was really something
0: sounds a bit uh, like our, our Maverick celebration, so this year, 40 years old, um, and we're celebrating that spirit of doing things differently. Are there any Maverick moments that you experienced while you were at the Society?
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> Michael Fry got flung out. <laughs> um, he was so rude, um, this was at another burn supper, and um, he came in actually having had quite a bit to drink and then proceeded to have more. And uh, one of the waitresses came up to me and said, how important is that man? I know he's here to make a speech. And I said, why? She said, because he's exceedingly rude. And um, so, anyway, one thing led to another. And Leslie Hills, who's Pips uh, was Pip's wife, she said, that's it. <laughs> and out <laughs> somebody else will give your speech
0: <laughs> oh that's definitely doing things differently
1: <laughs> well he was he was pretty well known then you know um, well he still writes columns still writes books but uh you no, know, we, we we didn't stand for that kind of rudeness and certainly not you know to people that were working there and stuff
0: no
1: no absolutely
0: um In regards to your time as the first Managing Director of the Society, that was at a time when the industry was really dominated by men. What was your experience in the industry as a woman? Um, Well, it varied. It it varied
1: from, you know, how can a rank amateur be successful um, to just kind of... some, Some people were very encouraging. And and very helpful, as I've said, but equally that there was others that that weren't. I mean, I remember sitting here um, one day and uh, there was a man came in and he said, uh, uh, can I see your boss? Is he in? I immediately turned into my mother, you know, and said, go outside the door, think about it and try again. (laughs) And he immediately came in and, you know. So, uh, and, and it wasn't the best way to, to talk to him or to, to behave, but it was just instantaneous, you know, and I, I was just fed up at that time of being kind of belittled and put down when we really struggled and worked very hard on many, many fronts, you know, the building, the property, doing it up, extending the membership. And we were, we were working kind of flat out all the time. Um, so, yeah, like everything in life, varied.
0: And there were quite a few other women that worked at the society in your time. I, I believe you're telling me when we sat down, there were sometimes more women than men.
1: There were more women than men um, initially. And then as we expanded and we needed uh, someone to, to run the members room, we had Alan and Jimmy came on board, etc., etc. But initially there was a very tight group of women. But I think that's probably been true from all I know about the Society. And certainly, that's who the members know often because they're front of house, they're the ones picking up the telephone, they're the ones delivering the orders or saying to things, or, or just asking advice.
0: Mm-hmm. And in your time at the Society, are there any favourite moments that you have?
1: Um, mm, now, i have to think about that probably sitting at the fireside through next door late at night just chatting. I mean just lovely. As you know the members are so varied and so interesting and very keen and often have made quite an effort to get here and it's it's lovely to make them feel welcome to hear the stories and um, yes probably that. more than kind of, you know, when we started tastings, because that had never been done, and we, we started travelling and going out with Edinburgh. We got a van, and we loaded it up with whisky, and um, off we went in different circuits. We had been to London and um, quite a few times, and that just expanded, and that was lovely, because not everybody could come to Scotland, so it was really nice to go there and, you know, Meet, meet a whole variety of other people. And I have to say, I ended up in cities that I've never been to since, um, and, and fascinating.
0: Was there anything else um, that you think our, our members might enjoy hearing about? I think
1: um, I was thinking about that since you called me, and I thought the night, one of the things, the legacy things, are this has continued. It's employed a lot of people, given a huge amount of enjoyment to a variety of people. And also there's the garden as you come in, because uh, we were up for the first Leith Enterprise Award and one um, um, Alison Brisbane, who was, who was my kind of um, helper, she, she put me forward, so I went for the interview blow it, did we win? And they had said to me, if, if you win, what will you do with the prize money? Well, I didn't know there was prize money. And so I said, oh, I'd make a garden, because I love gardening, and also so that there'd be some place for the staff to sit and have lunch, and that it would be nicer for the people about to look in on
0: the garden. So hence the garden downstairs. When Anne Dana left the Society, she had begun the process of taking Society tastings outside of Edinburgh. Under Anne Griffiths, then Cooper, this programme became larger, spanning the UK, Europe and beyond. Monique Tincortenar, SMWS ambassador for Benelux, sat down with Anne to find out more.
2: And the place that
0: I worked,
2: Denise Nielsen, who worked, was I think she was manager at the Society at the time, was the accountant. She used to take all their books away to audit them. And I just said to her, it was an awful place to work. And she said, you know, she said it is. Their books are dreadful, their accounts are awful. They're always in a mess. She said, I work at this place in Leith. Why don't you come down there and have a look at it? So I went down and my first experience was walking up. Have you been to the society in Leith? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you're walking up these beautiful steps and you walk into the reception. And when I walked into the members room, it was just amazing. I was completely overwhelmed. And she offered me a job because it was coming, it was Christmas time and they were really busy taking orders because Christmas, the society was very small at the time. But when the bottling list went out for the Christmas bottlings, the phone never stopped. So I started on the 1st of November yeah. and um, uh, initially just took orders and processed them. That's all I did. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. So I fa- Denise created a very good a- um, atmosphere. You know, it was always very relaxed, very warm, very friendly. Um, and if you had a question, you know, there were loads of people you could ask. Uh, so I got into that and then early the next again year uh, i think Anne dana had left by then um and she used to do one of the ways to recruit members was to do tastings in in places um that members were there and then they would bring people along and you try and encourage them to join as well so Anne dana had been doing that and started it and there was there was she did quite a few tastings but she'd gone and the chap who, st- who was helping her said, oh, do you want to come and help me do the tastings? I thought, okay, then I'll come and help you. So that progressed and then he left. And um, I really got into, I was really getting interested and I used to walk into the members room and talk to members and it wasn't as busy, anything like as busy as it is now. I mean, we even used to cook the tea at the, the, the lunch on Friday if there was nobody else there. Fish and chips, we did it in, in the kitchen, in the society. Everybody mucked in. It was fabulous. Nice. Really. Um, and um, so I started to do the tastings and then the, the chap that was there left, he retired. So I then talked to Denise and I said, oh, I'd, I'd quite like to go with this. Now, Richard Gordon hadn't, wasn't there by this time and Denise was trying to be manager as well as accountant and everything. Um, and one of our directors was a guy called Douglas Mackay. He was a finance director at the time. He was a massive, big guy, um, was a, a rector of Leith Academy. Um, he was a, a councillor for Edinburgh Council. He was a, the chairman of loads of charities. Um, and he was the one initially who helped me get background knowledge to whiskey um, and I said well why don't you come to some tastings with me and I, I'll i you do the speech I'll, I'll do all the pouring and everything so initially Douglas Mackay and I set off to do tastings and then Richard Gordon started as managing director he went to um, the Pentland Research Institute, you'd heard about Dr. Jim Swan. And I can't remember the lady's name who set up the Pentland Research Place. And they were doing this this thing with whiskey about how to nose and taste it and all of these things. So Richard went to one of the original courses. um, And he was great because to him, there were no barriers. Anybody can do anything so long as you know what you're doing and you're willing to learn, go for it. So then he said, I think you would benefit from it. So I went to, to Jim Swan's, I think about the fourth or fifth one at Pentland Research. And it it's it's mind blowing in a way, because you think you know what you're doing and then you know you're not you don't know what you're doing. You can talk about whiskey, you can talk about its history. But actually being able to encourage people to nose and taste whiskey properly um, was quite difficult. And I thought it would be difficult more difficult being a woman. But in actual fact, it wasn't. It really was, I found, I have never had a glass ceiling in the society where anybody who came in, if they worked hard, if they knew what they were doing, and if they wanted to learn, you could just go with it. It was a fabulous place to work. And I think it still is, to be fair. Um, So it, it just snowballed. So then what I used to do was, I used to get a printout of say a postcode of an area like a big city, find out how many members there were there. And then we'd drop a line to them and say, look, we're thinking of coming to, say, Manchester to do a tasting. How many people can you bring along? And if you've got enough, then they'll say, right, okay, we'll put a tasting on. So that was how we started. Mm. Um, And it just got bigger and bigger. And I used to leave home on a Thursday morning and drive to God knows where in the country Um, and do a tasting on a Thursday night then if there was another town close by or city close by I would put a tasting on there as well and membership just grew because we put an incentive on that if you get somebody to join tonight you'll get a miniature bottle of whiskey if they get somebody to join tonight they'll get a miniature bottle of whiskey as well and it just it was just fantastic they didn't mind it was a woman telling them how to drink whiskey properly. And you've had the odd comments and things, you know, but I was ne- I was never offended. And if I didn't know something, I always told up to well, I just don't know that, but I will find out, you know. So and it snowballed, and I think in all the time that I did tastings, um I, I, I can't I can't even begin to tell you how many towns I covered in the UK. There wasn't an area that I haven't been to in the UK and put on tastings. And a lot of them, when they became um, very supportive and they kept coming and just kept going. And then in 1995, no, the other thing was it helped, I must tell you this as well, because this is where this is where Scotland being a small place actually works. There was a lady who worked for the Scottish Tourist Board and she was head of marketing. And the Tourist Board used to go to lots of these exhibitions like business incentive travel markets and things like that. To, to, um, but she came in one day and spoke to Denise and said, oh, we've got a journalist coming. Could, could you talk to her? And Denise said, no, I can't, but Anna will talk to you about society and about what we do. Um, so that mushroomed again. Um, and then they asked me if I would go to Geneva with them to do one of their incentive market travels. Um, so I did Geneva twice, then it was Madrid and Spain, and then Chicago. So that started going, it was fabulous. Yeah. Um, and then again, the interest, We obviously we had the American Society in 93 who became very interested in setting up over there. So I went over there, most of 93, I went out there about four or five times to help set up their tastings so they knew what they were doing. So I spent a lot of time in New York that year, which was great. Um, and I used to do all the press coverage for the society, unless it was somebody like Pip and were t- really interested in how they wanted to get to grips with how did this idea come about and things. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I used to handle all the press things. And one Sunday morning I went in because there was a journalist from um, Australia and she was doing a big, uh, big piece on Qantas wanted to start selling tourism in Australia through, you know, through what what you can do in Scotland. And I did that, and all of a sudden they said um, there was a lot of interest in the society. Uh, why don't we do an Australian tasting tour? Which was amazing, totally amazing. Um, so we were all set up, and we I did a. Australian Broadcasting contacted us on one Thursday night at about seven o'clock at night our time. I did an interview on in Australian Broadcasting, and all of a sudden, the phones never stopped ringing about how can we join, how can we join. So from that came the tasting tour, um, and we did Singapore because we had a member there, and he said we did. I did. A, a, we had, we set all the dates up. I had a, there was a girl, an Australian girl who worked for us at the time called Julie Fraser. Yeah. She was from Perth, um, so she went out and set up all the venues. So we did, we did Perth, um, we did Adelaide, we did Sydney, Brisbane, and what's the other one? Uh, three, we did the only state, the only territory we didn't go to was the Northern Territory, and it was amazing. People were just blown away with the whiskey. But when we were getting ready to go, this guy in Singapore phoned and said, could you stop over in Singapore and do a tasting for us? And it was on St Andrew's night. So we did. We stopped in Singapore. They put us up. And Julie and I were exhausted because we'd actually done three nights in London doing big tastings at the crypt in London. And um, he said, stop over here and do a tasting on St Andrew's night for us. So we did do that, but the funny thing was, we were in we have we were in our room, just recovering from travel, and uh, the phone call on the uh, and, she, and this this little girl said to me, she said, "Are you um, I was Cooper at the time, and Cooper." And yes, are you the star turn tonight? I went, "Oh no, no, I, I'm not <laughs> doing anything tonight." She said, she put the phone down. She said, "Oh." Missy Cooper, you are the star turn tonight. Could you come down to the hall? And I went down to this hall. I've never seen anything so big. And they were trying to hang sw- swatches of tartan, but they were worried in case they would offend anyone if they put one tartan next to the other. I said, no, it'll be fine. So that was an experience. Okay. Um, so in 1995, ninety they, they made me... Um, a director, um, and that, I never expected anything like that. It was just there was a whole reshuffle of the board, and my name came up, and, and I think it was Leslie Hills um, who had said, you know, well, I, I think that given what she's done, that there's, there's uh, there are the memberships, the members all know her and like her and things. She'd make a good addition to the board. So I did. That so was great. Um, And then by that time as well, I'd met a chap called Robert Wilson who owned a restaurant in London called The Bleeding Heart. Robert had previously been a journalist and he was married to a journalist who was a food journalist. And he set up this little place called The Bleeding Heart um, and restaurant in Bleeding Heart Lane Yard. Um, And he said, I've I've just taken over the, the marketing of, the crypt in St. Ethel Church. Now the crypt in St. Ethel Church was where Henry VIII got married to Catherine of Aragon and there was a three day feast there. So I went along and had a look and it was beautiful, stunning. So he said, why don't you do your tastings here? So the link started there with Robert and it was great because it was right on the cusp of the city of London. So people who, most of our members, and we had members all over the place, but most of them were in the city of London working. Um, so we started off with two nights, then three nights, and then it went four nights of over a hundred people coming to tastings. But what they would use it is they would use it for corporate tastings as well. So if you had somebody who was really high up in a, a company or a, you know an associate would bring all his clients. So then you start to get members from them. And what they had, I, I used to spend two weeks in London three nights doing tastings at the crypt, but then working for various companies doing private tastings for them, entertaining clients. So then it came up, well, why don't we open uh, a members room in London? So Richard Gordon and I went down, had a look, started to look for premises, and Robert Wilson said, well, I've got a proposition because I want to buy this building here and up above it was some old jewelry. Hatton Garden is where the society was. and It's a jewelry quarter of London and had been some jewelry they used to carve and, and um, cut diamonds and things in this building. And he said, it's empty now. And he said, it would make a good members room for the society. Well, Farringdon Station was at the bottom of the road. So it's two, two stops from the city of London where most of our members were. It just was a no brainer. So I had just met my husband now then um, and I was still living in Edinburgh. He lived down here um, just outside Birmingham, in solihull And I said to him, I said, there's an opportunity come up. Um, and I wasn't doing tastings in because there were lots of other people doing them. Um, I was just doing the old corporate one um, and the London ones I still kept. And I said, well, there's an opportunity because I would actually quite like to come and set up London Um, He said, I said, but I'd have to move in with you. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, yeah, that's all right. I said, well, it's not just me because I've got to bring my youngest daughter with me, (laughs) but he knew them and he said, well, that's fine. So myself and my daughter moved down in 1997, Carrie went to college down here. And I worked in and got an architect to do London. We we took on the premises um, at Bleeding Heart. And that's when the London Society, the, the London Membership, was born. And I worked there um, until we got taken over by Glen Morangi. Um, and I did all we did the tastings. I had a really good team down there as well. Robert Wilson was amazing in the support that he gave us. To be honest, um, and Glen Morangi. We got taken over in 2000, I think it was 2004. So Richard suggested that I work some of the time in Edinburgh, put a manager into London. And that's what I did. Um, 2004, 2005, 2007, I got quite poorly. I had cancer. Richard had left. Um, And uh, I had just stepped into his shoes, but I I didn't, I'm not a managing director. I don't want that responsibility. I loved what I did because it gave me a sense of freedom. I did have responsibilities, but nothing that was going to weigh me down. So um, when I was off with the appointed a new managing director who was uh, part of Glenmorangie and And I just came back and it felt that it it had all changed. It became a business that had to make money. Because once you're batter for bigger, because that's right, because Glenmorangie were then taken over by Louis, Louis Vuitton Moat Hennessy, the Moat Hennessy side of it. And it all became about profit. And my, my husband Richard said to me, um, he said, you really, you can't do this anymore. You can't, you can't be worrying about going to work. It wasn't a day in my working life with the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society that I couldn't wait to get to work. I loved it. And i also have to say that although i gave a lot to the society i got a lot back because it as as a single parent it it gave me a purpose it gave me um a career and it gave me confidence and it was just it was it was a two-way thing i think we both benefited from from me being there so and that was it i left in december 2008 um and that was it really, that's, that's my, that's my experience. I, you know, I, I still get members from Christmas cards from members. Oh. Um, that's so really nice. I haven't gone back and I think it's, I think it's sad sometimes to go back because things are never the same as it, it was before, but then the society always has to keep moving on. And I think the good thing is it seems to have turned full circle with
0: Pip coming back as well. So it's quite nice, actually. Anne's confidence would go on to inspire a young artist named Annabelle Meekle, who would play a key part in the development of the Society's next members' room, Edinburgh's 28 Queen Street. Here's Group Marketing Director Rebecca Hamilton speaking to Annabelle about her time with the Society. Today, I'm just so keen to hear about your experience and your passion
3: and where you see the Society of where it's come from and where it's gone today. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and and why you were part of the society originally? I must say thank you, Rebecca, completely by
4: chance. Um, I have no official training at all to do anything to do with whisky. I was trained as an artist and I did Mm -hmm. that for a few years very successfully, but became a bit of a factory. So I went to work in a very famous deli in Edinburgh where I met James, the chef, Uh uh, and another friend who then went to work down in the vaults who persuaded me to come down. And I walked into that fabulous building and thought, this is where I want to work. And um, often it's the case with me, they didn't have a job, but they said, well, could you, you know, could you start on the bar? And James said, Mm could you come and make Mm -hmm. sandwiches in the kitchen with me? (laughs) And I said, yep, that'll do. Wonderful. And I did that for a few weeks, and um, I was very, very fortunate enough to be put on Society Whiskey School, which was run by our, fa- our good friend Charlie McLean and mm-hmm. the late um, Jim Swan. Mm-hmm. And I trundled along to that, not knowing anything, and halfway through the morning, Charlie said do you know you've got a very good sense of smell? <laughs> and I said, oh, I he went, Aha. <laughs> didn't really know that. And um, so he said, well, I'm going to teach you. And he really took me under his wing and brought Wonderful. me onto panels. And he would drill me at panels and mm-hmm. sort of say, what kind of smoke is that? Is it fresh smoke? Is it peaty smoke? Is it uh-huh. bonfire smoke? And he just made me have a vocabulary to be able to talk About whiskey, and I just fell in love with it. And it was a very embracing world. And what I found that everybody was very, very keen Mm -hmm. to ask all you know, ask questions, answer my endless questions, and really
3: just support me as a young woman. That was 22 years ago. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Oh, what a great story, especially the, the learning of the language and the terminology. Um, or, and how that's, how that's continued through and how, how do you feel about that now? How, how do you look back on that with your, uh, I suppose, your emotional connection to that moment in time? What's your feeling towards that?
4: Oh, it's phenomenal. I, I won the International uh, Global Ambassador of the Year mm-hmm. last year at the mm-hmm. Spirit of Space Side Awards, something I had never expected or anticipated. And I took a table at recent whiskey dinner Mm -hmm. with all the people that had helped support me in those really early days because that is my tribe. And I Mm -hmm. felt so, Mm -hmm. as I say, nurtured, reassured, encouraged. I never encountered anything negative. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I think I was treated as quite a lot of them, their little sister, Mm -hmm. uh, which Mm -hmm. was great. And when I asked Richard Gordon, who's our then MD, um, to get some help to go to Islay for the first time, mm-hmm. I was taking my tent. I drove over in the old jalopy, and he helped set me up with interviews. So I felt all the way people were encouraging me mm-hmm. to ask questions and to learn more and to go to distilleries. And I think that's one of the things that the society
1: yeah, really does well—that you know?
3: natural spirit of encouragement and passion and uh, welcome and an invitation to go on an adventure really is is the wonderful yeah. thing. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And that's sharing
4: of knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that was one of the strongest feelings that I had mm-hmm. as a young woman-ish in the industry.
3: <laughs> so how do you think the society has changed over the years since that wonderful time that you came in? What, what's your big observations about what, what's changed since that time and, and potentially also what that might mean for the way that we go forward? Well,
4: interestingly, when I started in 21, we didn't have Queen Street, which seemed almost mm-hmm. unimaginable now. Uh, we had London and Leith, and I think Leith did have a very traditional feel to it, and I don't think mm-hmm. we all accepted mm-hmm. that. And I was looking after the corporate program, which was delightfully called Good Company, mm-hmm. and we had an increasing amount of companies wanting to have a corporate membership, but Leith wasn't quite the right fit, and mm-hmm. so we came and looked at this building as it was just about to start to to be developed for flats and we thought this is the ideal venue place for a for a different style of Mm -hmm. venue and I remember and Jan reinforces the day we opened it the members came up from Leith and they all went oh it's not like the vaults is it (laughs) and we were just like nope it's not meant to be uh-huh. and the wonderful thing about this building in 28 queen street is it's it's had so many incarnations the rooms have changed developed it's been modernized but it's still at its heart holds very much a society feel mm-hmm. to it mm-hmm. you know and i think that's a lot of that's down to the staff so mm-hmm. i think what we've also seen is a real and development of the events, which are mm-hmm. much, much more inclusive. Mm-hmm. When I started, they were literally five whiskies. You might have got an oat cake, but that mm-hmm. was about mm-hmm. it. <laughs> and there was a very definite feel about it. And because I come from a foodie background, um, I introduced food into tastings, which were quite revolutionary at that time. So mm-hmm. cheese and shellfish mm-hmm. and smoked meats and what have you. And immediately the demographic of the audience shifted Mm -hmm. and it became more sort of like 60 40 and people came as couples or groups of friends Mm
3: -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. just being rather a male orientated experience fantastic this march we're looking to really celebrate that diversity and that spirit of inclusivity and welcoming anyone in Uh, and also because it's international women's day really making a more taking a moment in time to celebrate that We've been talking about introducing uh, female only tasting events so that women together can experience that dynamic and also the difference in how women's senses work, um, which is different. What do you think the big opportunities are for us in terms of how we diversify and, and do things differently going forward, knowing what you, have, you created in the past and, and what we've achieved to date?
4: Yeah, and I think I think the society has always been particularly open to this, which I think mm-hmm. is very encouraging. And I, as I say, when I said, well, why don't we do your cheese and whiskey tasting? Nobody sort of said, well, we've never done that before. Um, it mm-hmm. was like, great, you know, go and do it, write a programme of events. And I think that's what we have the opportunity to do here. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I observed early on was that if if I stood up in front of an audience, a mixed audience, mm-hmm they would have thought of a Charles McLean character that was going to tell them about whiskey. And what I found was the, the women in the audience would go, well, she's a woman yeah. and I she's doing this. Yeah. Yes, I see you. And if I you don't see you. people mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. something that you might be interested in, then you, uh, you're you not going to try yeah. it. Yeah, and absolutely. I think that's what the society's done so well. and But without making it too labored, and the other thing that I did when we came up here was we had two very traditional burn suppers down in the vaults, which were fabulous events. And when I came up here I thought, well, we have the opportunity to, to do something different. Mm-hmm. And we did an all-girls burns and we ran it for mm-hmm. I can't remember how many years, but it was so <laughs> Can fascinating. <I> come, <laughs> yeah, it was so interesting. And it just created an environment where women could not only appreciate the whiskey and the food, but um, the poetry and the, the love of Burns which has always been a very male bastion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it just took all of that away from it and it was quite a different experience mm-hmm.
3: in terms of the mm-hmm. presentations and the singing and, and the dynamic in the room. Well, it's, I, I, was, I was at an all-female event recently which I don't know if I've ever been to an all-female event before on such a big scale and I was struck by the dynamic and, and, and how that just changes, it's just different and it's just something that's interesting and it's yeah. a celebration of a different set of dynamics and, and the way that people can have conversations, so yeah. it's, it's something to celebrate. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, there have been quite a few women who have helped establish the society over the years, and you were obviously one of them, but we have a number of other people who played a real part in that journey. and. What does that mean to you? And who are some of the particular characters that that come to mind? I was very lucky. Anne
4: Dana was a little bit before my time, but Anne Griffiths was Mm -hmm. very much a role leader. She was looking after London at that point, but she spent a lot of time coming up and down because she had family in Edinburgh. And I suppose it just normalised it for me that there was a woman in an influential um, position who was senior in the company and actually in the backroom staff we had quite a few um, women our finance director was was a woman um, I'm trying to think now it was so long ago mm-hmm. but it didn't seem to me like it was a an odd thing. it just thought mm-hmm. we, you know these these are people with a skill set. and Anne I suppose was a great influence to me because of that natural normalization and encouragement and actually, now I think about it, most of our sales team at our marketing mm-hmm, were mm-hmm, women. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it didn't seem abnormal to mm-hmm. me. Um, behind the bar, probably a bit less of a split. But mm-hmm. again, it wasn't that sort of thing of, well, I'm not going to share with you the knowledge that I have. The, the boys in, that I work behind the bar with, um, some of them have gone on to do amazing things were always wanting to sort of say, oh, gosh, if you tried this latest St. Madeleine, you know, have a nose and taste. And I suppose we were very easy with all of
3: that. So it, it mm-hmm. felt very, very easy to Very learn. comfortable and natural. Yeah. Absolutely. There are, lo- there are lots of women and men who have started out behind the bar, at the vaults, at Queen Street, who have worked for the society over the years. And they have gone on to work throughout the industry. Why do you think that is, and, and how important do you think that is as a statement about what the society's about?
4: Well, I think just that point that I've made, that we would work very closely on the bar or at an event or at a tasting, and it wasn't like there was somebody just standing at the front of the room performing, doing the tasting. It was all about the bar staff saying, oh, gosh, I've just remembered we've got some really lovely Glenlivet tucked Mm -hmm. away in a cupboard, (laughs) let's get that out and use it for this. So there was this constant Mm -hmm. sense of um, wanting to help each other. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what it did. And we also were given a huge responsibility. Now I look back on it, Um, you know, I think of running the vaults as I was doing at one stage and then coming up here and organizing the whole programs and, you know, Jan looking after the restaurant and the bars what a huge amount Mm -hmm. of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that made us all quite brave and Mm -hmm. ready then to Mm go, right, well, what's the next thing? And then see a lovely generation of new people coming in Mm -hmm. and finding the same sort of hunger to learn. So I think that's been the the society's one of its
3: greatest strengths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that, that there's such an energy and a passion that creates uh, momentum. For everybody that works in the society that I meet, see, talk to, that ripples across members to our employees and the way that we work and, and talk to each other, it's it's actually really very special um, and it's an absolute privilege to, to be in that environment, I think. So one of the other questions I wanted to ask you was around where you think the industry has got to now more broadly. So everything that we've said about the society is, is clearly very special and the wider industry in terms of where we've got to now and what the opportunity might be in the future, where do you think those big opportunities are and what do you think the things the industry either gets right or needs to think about as we move forward?
4: Oh, this is an ever-changing question. (laughs) And I think a few years ago, what Howard answered that was to say that I think when I joined in 2001, we were on a bit of a cusp to open things up festivals were beginning to happen Mm -hmm. people walked around festivals with notebooks you know instead of just you know slugging back their dram Mm -hmm. people asked questions people Mm -hmm. wanted to meet brand ambassadors but they wanted to meet distillery managers or Mm -hmm. production people because they wanted to dig in a bit more Mm, the study had started and i think that's where the society was really really strong because we brought in distillers Mm -hmm. we had our members events you know, they were relatively, they could be small, they could be large, but there was a very much an encouragement for people to seek knowledge Mm -hmm. and to understand and move away from this rule book, which I've never adhered to, Mm -hmm. that there are rules about whiskey, that you can't drink it with water and you can't drink it with ice and you have to be a bloke to drink it and what have you. And I think the society has busted so many of those myths. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, they've kept on doing it and they've you know look at the range of spirits and wines and that we have in this building today it never stops Mm -hmm. and stands still Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the fascinating things and I think it's made a lot of the other independents sit up and go, mm, gosh. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Look what they're doing now. <laughs> they're doing gin. Oh my goodness. I thought they were the Whiskey Society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I think we move into another area, in a bigger area, of more corporate, which, you know, we're just along the road from Johnny Walker Princess Street, which is a
2: huge
4: experience mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of helping people to come into the sector. And one of the things that people always say to me about here and about Johnny Walker, for example, is I don't like whiskey. Well, you don't need to Mm -hmm. because you Mm -hmm. can find somebody in that either building who will help you negotiate your way through maybe your first dram. Mm -hmm. And it might be a highball or it might be um, something Mm -hmm. very soft and sweet. It might be something smoky. I've had a lot of people who I've got them onto their first whiskey with smoke.
3: Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm.
4: so I think there's, a, there's, a, there's been a real burst with the visitor centres really becoming hubs absolutely. that people want to learn, they want mm-hmm. to go around, they want mm-hmm. to taste, they want to go and buy. You know, it's an absolutely extraordinary industry when you think back to mm-hmm. 1969
3: when the, the first visitor centre opened and everyone else was just a factory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's naturally innovative in the way that we think. It's constantly moving and constantly changing. Yeah. This, this is our 40th anniversary year this year, and we're excited and delighted to have some special surprises that we've got planned this year. One of the things that we're celebrating as part of our 40th birthday is that we've always done things, things a bit differently. What, what, are your fa- what was your favourite story of the society when you were working around it? in terms of something that we did differently or something that might have been a little bit out there or, oh, I think we'll take a risk on this. What's the favorite example that you've oh, got yeah, that comes to your mind? Oh, hard. Well, girls burns would be <laughs> yeah, one of them. It's a um,
4: lovely one. I think one. one of the projects which um, I worked on, which I really loved, was the 26 malts. Mm -hmm. And um, that was a really creative concept. And because I have a creative background, Mm -hmm. um, I found that so interesting. And what we did was we brought 26 writers and 26 creatives together. And I gave them a few tastings here in Edinburgh and down in London about how to nose and taste single-cast whiskey and a little bit about the regions and a little bit about the vocabulary. But I didn't need to do that much because Mm -hmm. they already, I could see, had ideas flying around in their heads. And then they were paired up and they went away with a wee bottle. It actually was quite a wee bottle. Uh And they came together, some of them virtually um, Mm -hmm. and some of them actually sitting over a table like this. And they started creating ideas. And it was such an interesting project to Mm -hmm. work on because Mm -hmm. the bottles that were produced, the labels, didn't look like anything that was anywhere, Uh not even just Mm -hmm. on a society shelf where everything was uniform. Mm -hmm. These were all completely different and one it looked like Chanel number no. five and oh, um, one of them was a pattern of <laughs> stones and then it, some of them had poetry some of them had mm. a lot of text mm-hmm. but it was a, seen some of them yeah, yes it's so really yeah. and we did it we did a, we did a <laughs> tasting of it a few years ago upstairs here which was really great to remember some of the stories that were around that
3: and how did that get people talking? Because the wonderful thing is that these moments create conversations in the room and people talk about things differently. What types of things were people saying and how were they reacting to doing something differently? Well, it was interesting because we'd been very traditional in some ways with our tasting note and the information
4: that went on the label. And then suddenly that wasn't there. And that, so you're, you're sort of... you prop if you like wasn't there anymore so you were suddenly looking at a bottle with none of that information wide on open it. yeah so you really had to go into those whiskies and put your nose in the glass and think mm. right well what mm-hmm. are they talking about because mm-hmm. it's not
3: got my safety net of the mm-hmm. tasting note of- well, you test yourself mm. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yes yeah, so there's actually a few of those a few moments like that, that we're looking forward to this year um, there's a very special moment coming up quite imminently with a visit that we have uh, from members all over the world who will be coming oh. to help select uh, a number of casks uh, for the gathering later in the year. So we're, we're very excited about that because that's exactly the moment where we'll have these conversations where people test themselves and how their different experiences of the same, the same spirit are being experienced by different people. So that's, that's a moment that we're looking forward to in the next few weeks, especially because we'll have our, our visitors coming from all over the world uh, to do that and to take part. One of the one of the last questions I want to ask you is around what you love the most about what we all do, you know? Why are you still here? Why do you love what you do? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? What what is it that makes you tick?
4: The one word that is always used to describe me when I'm being introduced to an audience is passion.
3: Mm -hmm. And
4: I don't really know where that passion came from. Um, When I was a wee girl, um, I was the youngest, and my dad used to come home and pour himself a large dram because he was a surgeon. All surgeons need a dram. Uh And I used to (laughs) put my finger in it and call it Daddy's nippy juice, and I didn't like it. (laughs) Probably goes against everything regulatory now. But that, in my head, there was a story about... Glen Morangi, as it was then, it was something that I grew up with with my with my father, and then I came to the society and I suddenly saw this whole array. It was like a rainbow of beautiful sensory experiences in front of me, Mm -hmm. and how then you could describe it. And actually, Charlie and I describe things quite similarly, but he does it in a much more clinical way, and Mm -hmm. I do it in a much more Mm -hmm. sort of flowery. Expressive way, so it's to be able to share that passion with other people and lots of audiences
3: mm-hmm. that what's wonderful is that combination of being an artist at heart along with that passion and being able to bring that to life to people it's it's wonderful
0: thanks to Anne Dana, Anne griffiths and annabelle for taking the time to share their society stories with whiskey talk if you're a member of the scotch malt whiskey society there's even more stories celebrating spirited women waiting for you in the latest edition of our exclusive members magazine unfiltered we'll be back soon with more whiskey stories but in the meantime you can always reach out by email at unfiltered at smws.com until the next time on whiskey talk cheers